Welcome to Grain Talk, a podcast by Grain Farmers of Ontario. This is Megan McKimmy. And I'm Rachel Telford. This is Friday, August 24th, and here are your grain headlines for this week. Uh, So we've heard just recently that Quebec MP Maxine uh, Bernier uh, said he's quitting the Conservative Party to create uh, his own new right-wing party. Um, And he's sort of had a a number of things to say about the Conservative Party and his colleagues, uh, or his former colleagues, about that. Um, So he's yet to announce, uh, as of this um, podcast, the name of his new party. So I guess it's still a bit of speculation as to what it will be. But there is the possibility if this goes ahead and he does form this new um, party that it could split the votes federally and which could be reflective in the coming election. So we'll have to keep our eyes on where this goes in in the coming weeks. At the provincial level, Premier Doug Ford is continuing to say that he has promises made, promises kept. And this week, there's been several announcements from the Ontario government, starting with a freezing of the driver fees that were supposed to be implemented in September. So that's one way that he's saying that the government is helping to keep the money in the pockets of uh, the people. And as well, they've made two announcements in terms of wanting to work together with people. The first one is a relationship with municipalities through a memorandum of understanding with the Association of Municipalities of Ontario. And this, they say, is going to help improve relations between the provincial and municipal level. And the other one is that they are going to be respecting parents by holding consultations around education reform um, and the development of an education parents bill of rights. Um, So that's basically going to mean that parents are going to have their say on all aspects of the curriculum. They're looking at improving students performance in uh, the STEM disciplines, so science, technology, engineering and math, and as well looking at how schools are preparing students uh, with needed jobs skills and exposing them to opportunities in the skilled trades, for example. So perhaps that's something that within agriculture, we can also raise our voices and say, hey, we need some more agriculture education in the classrooms as well. So if you're interested in uh, letting your thoughts known on that, be sure to look out for the Ontario government's uh, consultation. And uh, Grain Farmers of Ontario is currently down at the CNE, and we will be until after Labor Day weekend. Um, so the CNE is a good opportunity for the uh, organization and our staff to get out um, and talk about some of the key issues uh, in agriculture and grain. So we've brought a bunch of handouts on GMOs, pesticides, pollinators, um, and we're just trying to educate the public as well as having some fun activities like face painting on the weekends. So um, a bit of education, a little bit of fun. <laughs> And apparently last year, 1.56 million visitors were at the CNE. So that's a lot of people. And I mean, we don't get all those people through the farm building, but uh, those that do definitely seem to be engaged in asking questions about farming and and on the grain front, you know, about those hot topics such as the pesticide use and GMOs and, you know, but even sometimes just the simple questions like, what is the difference between grain corn and sweet corn? I know I was there for a couple of times already this year, and that was one of the more popular questions that I was getting. So in addition to some of those other hot topics, but yeah, it's definitely a great event. So if any farmers are planning to head down to the CNE this year, be sure to stop by the farm and come say hello. Coming up next on the podcast, we talk about the weather and farming. <laughs> 
Today on the podcast, we're joined by Brett Anderson, who is the senior meteorologist at AccuWeather, and he's on the phone from Pennsylvania today. Uh, so we wanted to talk to you a bit, uh, Brett, because I think farmers are always kind of having their eye on the weather, and I, I think you might have some interesting insights to offer us. Yeah, we yeah we certainly do. We just uh, finished our fall forecast this morning uh, for all of Canada, so we'll talk about that and certainly can recap the uh, kind of the crazy summer that we had across much of the country. Uh, plenty of extremes, no doubt about that. So, Brett, why don't we start with talking a little bit about yourself and as a senior meteorologist, what does that mean? What is it that you do? Well, it means that I've been here a long time. That's one thing. <laughs> I've, um, yeah, I started here at AccuWeather. We're the, the world's largest private weather company, and we uh, provide forecasts all across the world. Uh, I happen to be the uh, lead forecaster for Canada, and uh, I've been pretty much focused on Canada now for about oh, a dozen years or so. Uh, and um, I started working here in 1989, fresh out of college, so it's been a uh, uh, you know, very interesting job. The weather changes all the time. So uh, being a meteorologist is fun because it's not the same thing every day. And, and then again, when the weather it turns extreme, uh, we're very busy. But, uh, you know, it gets the, the blood pressure going. And uh, it's a very interesting job, no, no doubt about that. And again, I've been uh, providing a long-term seasonal forecast for Canada now uh, for quite a while now. And uh, uh, we, we will be releasing our, our fall forecast uh, early next week. So when we talk about going to college and being a meteorologist, can you let us know some of your background in terms of what that means in terms of the science that you need to know? Yeah, well, we have to know a lot of math. Um, I was not very good in math. That was my, I struggled in math. Um, but I was very good at the forecasting part in college. We had a lot of contests in college. Um, in terms of weather forecasting, and uh, I did pretty well there, and that's that helped me get my job here at AccuWeather. Um, a lot of us struggle with the math. Um, really, if you want to be a meteorologist, the math is not quite as important as it used to be. Uh, computer models take care of a lot of that now, and we have so many computer models uh, that uh, kind of takes that part out of it. Now, if you were a meteorologist many years ago, you needed the, more of the math because we didn't have less in the way of computers. But... Um, so math is very important, obviously, to become a meteorologist. You want to be good at math. They still require that. And, of course, in general, you want to have a passion. I think that's probably the biggest thing. Uh, you really want to have a passion for the weather. And people who have the biggest passion for the weather seem to be the most successful in terms of forecasting. And I wanted to be a meteorologist since I was four years old. Um, I think I was affected by a big blizzard growing up in New England, and uh, I think it just took off from there. Great. And how did you get into forecasting weather for Canada? What did you start out with when you first uh, were at AccuWeather? And yeah, I that was again that was many years ago. Uh, I think they, they just asked me. I started writing a actually I write two blogs for AccuWeather. Um, I have been writing the climate change blog now for about uh, twelve years, and then shortly after doing that, they asked me to start a Canada blog. Uh, we were writing a number of blogs for the United States and other parts of the world, and so they were looking for people to uh, talk about those things. So I took I took that upon myself, and uh, I've been continuing to write this blog now, uh, you know, uh, for those many years, and uh, I've learned a lot about Canada weather. Certainly, uh, see all the drastic changes that we've been been going on due to climate change, especially in northern parts of Canada, where it's really being felt. 
So the two of those are pretty much linked pretty well. Um, so I, you know, I just uh, continue to do it. I, I think folks in Canada uh, seem to be a lot more forgiving of bad forecasts. You know, we all have bad forecasts uh, compared to the folks in the United States. Uh, uh, you know, uh, there's been times where I've you know missed some forecasts, but uh, I think uh, folks in Canada understand the challenges of weather forecasting maybe a little bit better than they do in the United States. So we have had quite a few challenges this summer uh, from a farming perspective. Um, Maybe we can talk a little bit about what we've seen so far this growing season uh, in terms of rainfall. Yeah, are you talking about Ontario? In Ontario specifically, yeah. yeah. It's been mixed bag really in Ontario. Um, Since for the growing season, which officially according to Environment Canada starts April 1st, uh, actually rainfall has been uh, slightly above normal across uh, southern Ontario. But as you head into northern Ontario, it's been slightly below normal. Obviously, we've had the the fire situations up in the north here with all the smoke and uh, some of the dryness has certainly added to that that problem. But overall, for the growing season across uh, southern Ontario and also eastern Ontario, uh, we've had uh, slightly above normal rainfall, which is actually probably a good thing in the summertime. Now, if you go south, into the Appalachians of Pennsylvania and New York State, that's where we've had some very heavy rainfall this summer. And actually down where I am in Pennsylvania, uh, we've had the wettest summer on record. Um, Yes, we want rain in the summer, but we don't want that much rain where you can't work in the fields. And in terms of why did that happen from a meteorological perspective, is there an explanation? Yeah, we well, what happened was we had the Bermuda High, which is typically big area of high pressure that sits near Bermuda during the summertime. That was actually a lot farther north than usual. So what that meant was meant Atlantic Canada was unusually warm and humid. Uh, probably going to be the warmest summer on record in Atlantic Canada. But also with that high in that position uh, south of Atlantic Canada, you get a, the clockwise circulation around that high that draws moisture, tropical moisture, northward right up into the northeastern part of the United States. Therefore, we had rounds of heavy rainfall during the course of summer. And some of that also got up into parts of Ontario and uh, extreme southwestern Quebec from time to time, but not nearly as much. And it's been a, a pretty, well, for us anyways, in Ontario, July was quite hot here and, and pretty humid too. Um, and you guys might have experienced that as well. But we're kind of curious when that weather comes along, we tend to get a lot of thunderstorms. And really, what's, what's the science behind those thunderstorms and how does that happen? Yeah, even though it's hot and humid, doesn't mean you're going to get a thunderstorm. What the, the key part to that is you need a trigger, you need a front, mm-hmm. or you need a disturbance like a pocket of cold air uh, up in the upper atmosphere. And when that moves overhead, that creates instability. An unstable atmosphere is when it's really warm, close where we are at the surface, much colder aloft. And so that creates instability, and that allows thunderstorms to form. Now, I think what's happened during July, it was hot and humid. We just, the air aloft was not that cold, so we didn't have much instability uh, for the thunderstorms to grow. And so we had just widely scattered storms, and otherwise it was hot. Um, you also had, you need moisture also in the upper parts of the atmosphere, and most of that was 
down towards uh, New York and Pennsylvania. So again, thunderstorms were there, but they, it was more scattered in nature. So we just ended up being mostly just hot and humid. Another key factor to that, folks living right along, uh, you know, right along the Great Lakes, uh, Great Lakes are running like three degrees Celsius above normal. So uh, the normal cooling breezes that you get off the lakes uh, were not quite as cooling as they usually are. Uh, we're kind of seeing this now. This is becoming commonplace now over the summers uh, as the lakes are uh, remaining quite warm. So that also increases the humidity uh, in places such as Toronto uh, and uh, also uh, you know London and uh, up towards Kingston. And you mentioned the Great Lakes. We've actually seen some footage from some of our farmer members that have posted on Twitter where they've seen some water spouts over the Great Lakes. Yeah, yeah uh, what makes those form? Well, usually the lakes are, are, in, are much warmer than usual. So if we get any type of cool air mass uh, coming in uh, on top of those lakes, uh, a front coming in with some really cool air behind it, which hasn't been the case too much, but from time to time we've had those fronts that come down here, the the, the warmth of the lakes uh, is creating tremendous instability. And so when you get that sharp change in temperature from the lakes being warm as they are to the colder air aloft, uh, that can lead to uh, an increased chances for water spouts. Um, I think we're going to see much more water spout activity, actually, as we get into September uh, and even early October, as we get start to see some colder air masses coming down, and those lakes are just going to continue to hold a lot of that heat uh, through probably through at least uh, mid-October. So uh, I'd be prepared for more water spouts. And if a spout forms over land, that's a tornado. Um, what's our situation looking like for the potential for tornadoes over the next month? Yeah, um, at this point, it, you know, it's hard to say when, you know, beyond 15 days, I would I would say this. Uh, the pattern looks not very conducive to tornadoes because it looks like we're actually going to turn into a more hot, humid pattern, uh, especially uh, across extreme southwest Ontario in the next uh, next week and into perhaps the first week of September. Uh, we may see more thunderstorms up across northern Ontario and perhaps into eastern Ontario, but not the type of setup where we see tornadic activity. And then once you get into September, the risk for tornadoes uh, greatly diminishes as we just don't really get hot enough typically that time of year uh, to produce uh uh, tornadic cells. So uh, we're starting to, you know, get off the peak for, for tornadic activity. But again, as we talked about uh, before we came on here, uh, certainly uh, people don't realize uh, there's uh, definitely a torna- tornado alley in uh, parts of Ontario, southwest Ontario. has seen several uh, F4, F3 rated tornadoes uh, over the past uh, 100 years. So it's not that uncommon. And when you're talking F3, F4, that's the Fujita scale. Can you just give us a brief explanation about what that is for those that don't know? Yeah, that's uh, that measures the intensity of uh, the tornadic, uh, tornado, tornado winds. Uh, and so uh, when we look at the Fujita scale, um, you have F1, F0. It starts at F0, which is very weak tornado. And then F1, F2 can typically cause minor damage. Uh, then once you start seeing roofs, taken off homes, you probably jump to F3, and then houses moved off of foundations, getting up to about an F4, and then when everything is completely wiped away, that's when you talk in F5s. Is there, if if we were out in a field, um, I think once the tornado is getting close, we kind of know what we're seeing, but is there any really like early warning signs that someone might be able to spot up in the sky or 
Uh, is that well, a little bit it, hard to predict? Usually, what before a tornado star- starts, um, you start seeing you have a thunderstorm, of course, and the thunderstorm starts spinning. Uh, that's a rotating thunderstorm. So you start seeing the clouds kind of moving around in a counterclockwise uh, direction. Uh, a lot of times you see a thunderstorm come in, the clouds just kind of come towards you and move away. But when you start seeing a thunderstorm cloud start rotating around, that's when you want to keep an eye on the sky because that, that can eventually lead to a funnel cloud and a funnel cloud can eventually you know, reach the ground and become a tornado. So that's one thing if you're on the ground you can look for. Uh, and obviously if you see a funnel cloud you need to take cover because that certainly can uh, drop down to the ground very quickly. And we're coming into um, an El Nino, uh, I think that's coming up. Or what? Um, how would that affect our weather here? Yeah, I don't think it's going to have too much effect in the fall. It typically does not. It's going to be weak. We Right now we're on the edge of uh, getting into an El Nino, and what I expect early fall will be under weak El Nino conditions. It may become moderate strength uh, towards the end of fall. But usually the impacts uh, in Canada are fairly uh, small, with the exception of uh, the West Coast, which is closer to where El Nino originates uh, during the fall. We see most of our impacts during the winter uh, across Canada, and, and thus, again, uh, with that type of situation, El Nino usually means milder winters uh, across a good part of Canada, as uh, most of the real cold air remains trapped farther to the north. Now, what is El Nino? El Nino is basically the abnormal warming of the the surface waters out across the central Pacific Ocean near the equator. And when those waters warm, they warm because the winds change direction down there. That causes the weather patterns, the jet stream patterns to change across the Pacific Ocean and therefore change the, the, the storm track across much of North America. And so usually when the El Nino gets moderate to strong in strength, we see significant impacts across North America, especially during the wintertime. When it's a week, uh, which it could end up being, uh, those impacts are not nearly as strong, and it makes forecasting certainly a lot more of a challenge. What we've seen so far this fall, though, in the tropics is with the slight tick towards El Nino, we're seeing a lot of tropical storm activity and hurricane activity in the Pacific Ocean. We have uh, Lane now uh, targeting Hawaii, uh, looks like right now heading up towards Hawaii, but the Atlantic is extremely quiet. Very nothing going on right now, except for when I went on vacation. There was I went on a Caribbean yeah. cruise and there was a hurricane. The Where'd day you after go? That. <laughs> we we left from um, the states. We went down to uh, Grand Turk and we went to some yeah. private islands uh, for the cruise line. Yeah, it was, yeah, but of course the the one week that I go is the week that of there's course. a hurricane. See, I was I was lucky. I went to Hawaii. My wife' twenty fifth wedding anniversary. Last year, so the volcano hadn't erupted yet. Um, we didn't have a hurricane, so I'm very grateful that we went last year and this year because this year would have been kind of ruined probably because we went at the same time of year. Uh, in the Atlantic, again, back to the Atlantic, things are very quiet out in the Atlantic. Usually, when we have an El Nino coming on, uh, the Atlantic is fairly quiet in terms of tropical activity, whereas the Pacific becomes very active. And that again, that's due to the uh, the wind patterns that we see. And we don't get a direct hit from hurricanes typically here in Ontario, but we do tend to get the remnants. And so we haven't really had, I guess that's maybe a good thing with the amount of rainfall that we have seen in some parts that we haven't had those strong hurricanes drifting up here. Yeah, you're right. Um, that would certainly be a big problem across uh, parts of New York and Pennsylvania if we had a weakening hurricane or tropical storm coming up. Uh, 
in August and the rest of this month or September. That would be a big problem. And again, can also be a problem for parts of Ontario as those systems can continue to move northward, bringing heavy rainfall to the area. Don't see any any indications of that uh, through the next 10 to 14 days at this point. And again, we are forecasting uh, less activity along the eastern seaboard uh, through the remainder of uh, September into October uh, due to the increasing uh, strengthening uh, El Nino. So um, in this area, we plant a lot of uh, winter wheat, which means we are hoping to have a a fair bit of snow cover on that wheat throughout the winter. And you had mentioned that um, El Nino tends to make a bit of a wilder, um, milder winter. Milder, yes. uh, so is that something that might be on our thoughts and minds? I know that's a little far out. We might be asking yeah. you to... <laughs> um, yeah, you, if the El Nino gets moderate to strong, the, here's the deal. Um, we're looking at less outbreaks of cold air across southern Ontario. Uh, and that also reduces the the threat for significant lake effect snow. Mm-hmm. Now, the lakes are going to be warm, certainly, but if you don't have enough cold air coming down, uh, you're just not going to generate much in the way of lake effect snow. So we do think, uh, looking out ahead, we do think we're going to see less lake effect snow this season uh, just due to lack of cold, If assuming the El Nino strengthens. And again, typically with El Nino, we also see uh, a split in the storm track. Uh, one storm track goes across the southern U.S., which is way too far south to bring us anything up here in Ontario, and then another storm track that goes up to our north. So that kind of leaves Ontario kind of in a void here. So uh, again, if we if we are if we think there's going to be a moderate to strong El Nino this winter, right now we're leaning towards a moderate. That would probably argue against um, a, a significant snowpack across. Uh, much of Ontario. And once we get into an El Nino or a La Nina pattern, how long do we typically stay in that one pattern? It varies. It can be as little as, uh, you know, four or five months to as much as two years. Um, on average, I think it's around nine to 12 months, nine, nine months or so, nine, 10 months or so. And then they gradually uh, weaken off. So uh, more than likely, if we do get into El Nino, it'll probably peak uh, the middle of the winter, and then gradually weaken as we go into the the spring. And what, I guess, uh, as we're coming along, we talked a little bit about the winter, but what will our fall be kind of looking like in Ontario in terms of when we're getting into harvest uh, and what we might expect? Good question. Uh, we just uh, finished uh, just finished the uh, fall forecast there. We'll be releasing that again early next week. Uh, but uh, from what we're looking at here, much of Canada uh, we think we'll have, uh, at least southern Canada, will have uh, above normal temperatures. We are projecting uh, above normal temperatures across um, southern, uh, eastern Ontario, uh, near normal temperatures across uh, northern Ontario. And in terms of rainfall, kind of uh, uncertain at this point. Uh, we're, we're forecasting near normal rainfall um, because we think there will be a uh, a storm track directed up into the Great Lakes from time to time. But uh, you don't have to go too far east and west where we think a rainfall will be below normal, and that includes Quebec and also Manitoba. So we're kind of in the area where uh, I think it's going to be a slightly warmer fall than normal. I'd say that confidence is pretty high there with that. Rainfall, is the forecast for rainfall is low confidence at this point, so going near normal uh, for now. And when you talk about your confidence level in a forecast, what does that mean? Like, what are you basing how confident you are on? 
Well, it all it depends on uh, your signals. Uh, El, probably El Nino, La Nina are probably some of your strongest signals that we can get for a seasonal forecast. And uh, right now, we think that's going to be weak at this point for the fall. So that's not much of a signal. We also look at ocean water temperatures in the Atlantic, Pacific. Uh, yes, they're warm off Atlantic Canada. So our confidence is pretty high that it's going to be uh, above normal temperatures across the Canadian Maritimes. Here in Ontario, we're not as close to the Atlantic Ocean here, but the Great Lakes are pretty warm. So what I, I am confident that nighttime temperatures are probably going to be above normal throughout much of southern Ontario, which also, I believe, will delay the typical frost freeze probably for a week or two, I think, than we typically see here because of the lakes just being so warm. So that's something I am confident about. But rainfall-wise, uh, again, uh, the, the, there's really there's a lot of mixed signals. We um, When we come up with these forecasts, we look at the weather pattern uh, during the uh, spring and summer in the, in, across the northern hemisphere. And we try to match that up with other years going back to the 1950s and look for similar patterns. Uh, then we look at the temperatures and the precipitation and try to match that up. And what we come up with is analog years. And we, we have come up with several analog years here. Um, 1994 is one year that we've come up with. That's uh, one of our stronger analog years. Uh, also uh, 2009 and 2014. However, that's just not that's not the only part we look at when we make these forecasts up. Computer models have come a long way in predicting seasonal temperatures and precipitation, especially temperatures. Um, and the computer, some, some of our more reliable computer models are not in agreement with the analogs. Um, so you got to kind of balance things out a little bit. What we like to see is we like to see the analogs in good agreement with the computer models and in good agreement from what we, we feel as well. So that's what you like to see. That happens maybe about 25% of the time. Um, it's never that easy. But uh, so usually when we look do these seasonal forecasts, precipitation, uh, the confidence of precipitation is much less than that when it comes to temperatures. Temperatures we get better signals for than uh, precipitation. So has technology made your job easier or harder? Because it sounds like maybe yeah. it's made it a bit harder. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's easier and harder. Um, when I first started, there were three computer models that we looked at pretty much. Um, now there's... 10 times that maybe, and you don't have time, you don't have the time of the day to look at all these computer models, just, just too many models. Um, yeah, I, I, sometimes I almost think there's just too many models and we need to lessen the number of models and make, you know, a couple of really good ones instead of 25 fair performing models. I think we really need to concentrate and reduce the number of models that we have. Uh, it's just, there's just not enough time to look at all these models. So um, it's easier and harder, really. Um, I can call up information much quicker than I used to. Um, yeah, I can Radars are much better than they used to. Satellite imagery is just tremendous. I used to have to print out satellite images on a printer and wait for the printer to print it out, take a few minutes, and uh, the image would already be 30 minutes old. I can, I can get an image high-resolution image uh, instantaneously, and it's only five minutes old. So it, that's really a big change here. So I think technology has really improved with, in terms of issuing warnings for you know severe weather and 
storms that are, you know, going to be coming in the next few hours. That's really improved. And again, our forecasts going three to five days out have improved uh, as well. Uh, but uh, the technology has really, really uh, improved over the past 10 years. And uh, I'm sure you probably know, but I think one of the favorite topics of farmers we talk a lot about is what's happening with the weather and when can we get in planting and harvesting. Um, what is What would you say is their best way to sort of keep an eye on this, like downloading your apps or sort of what what's the best way to make some projections on when you can get into the field for harvesting, let's say? Yeah, well, our, you know, I talk, I like, you know, on my blog, I like to um, talk about the next uh, few weeks uh, where I think the overall weather pattern is going to be. Uh, there's pretty good science with that. We can't be totally specific, but I can say, you know, over the next one, two weeks, uh, three weeks or so, you know, the weather pattern across uh, southern Ontario looks like it's going to certainly be drier than normal. I can't say, well, what day is going to have this and that. But in general, for that week period, given week period, I can say with pretty good confidence that uh, the weather pattern looks like it's going to certainly favor uh, rainier, uh, a rainier week versus a drier week, uh, and certainly a warmer week versus a, a colder week. So, you know, there's, there's pretty good confidence with that. Uh, and again, I like to uh, write about that uh, in my blog. Um, I can't get specific, but I can give an idea you know, maybe that can help a farmer decide, well, looks like week two is better than week three for me to get out in the field and uh, and, and do my work. Uh, so that can help right there. Um, when you call up an app uh, on your phone, a lot of times those forecasts go out, you know, several days or so. Um, and I don't know if that's a big help to a farmer or not. Um, maybe he wants to look farther out in time or whatnot. But, um the, the science has certainly gotten good, uh, much better now, looking out one, two, three weeks uh, out into the future to give a general idea what the weather pattern is going to look like. So people always remember when you're wrong. They never remember when yeah. you've got the forecast right. right. Um, my, wife is, my wife is one of those people. <laughs> <laughs> She's my toughest critic, but that's fine. I, I'm, I'm good. She keeps me honest. <laughs> so I guess as a meteorologist, um, what would you say to people that sometimes comment that, oh, they don't really know what they're talking about, you know, that there's no real science behind it. They just kind of throw a dart at the map and that's what they go with. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't hear that too much anymore, but um, it doesn't bother me personally. It used to bother me when I was a lot younger, I guess, and we have a number of younger forecasters here. I think maybe it bothers them too, uh, but you kind of get immune to it. Um, I think most people understand the challenges of weather forecasting. I think that's a small number of people. I think farmers certainly understand the challenges of uh, weather forecasting, uh, uh, no doubt, no doubt about that. And um, you know, it's even though we have all this technology, uh, Mother Nature certainly uh, continues to throw many curveballs at us, um, especially uh, you know a few days out. Uh, we see that all the time. Uh, in the office here, we we criticize computer models all the time. Uh, they may say something one day and then totally change the next day, and then going back to the the other solution it had uh, two days ago. So uh, we see that uh, we just look for consistency. When we see consistency in computer models, that gives us confidence that a forecast is probably going to be on target. When we see waffling back and forth, um, we tend to go away from those uh, computer solutions that do that. That tells us that uh, they do not have a good handle 
on what the the, the forecast is going to be like. So we may look elsewhere or look to our experience. Uh, you know, a number of us here at AccuWeather have had uh, dozens of years of experience, and we try to put that into uh, factor that into our forecasts. Uh, we don't just look at computer models. We factor in experience. Some of us have good experience across the Northeast U.S. Some of us has good experience in Eastern Canada, Western Canada, California. Uh, we have a number of uh, experts who uh, just have been following the weather in those areas and uh, have a lot of experience in what the typical weather patterns are like. So uh, that's how we uh, do a lot of our forecasts here. We they kind of focus on uh, where we have experience. And that same same holds true. Uh, we have a number of international forecasters. We have uh, specialists for South America, uh, Europe, and also parts of Asia. So, uh, you know, we cover it all. And when you talk about the fact that the models on the computer can change even from one day to the next and then yeah. go back to where they were before, what is it that makes them change their mind? If you could, I guess, go into the mind of a computer, or like, why yeah, does it do that? It's, um, well, it's the input. Um, a lot of the input into these models is estimated input. Um, the world would be a lot, I think computer models may be a lot, would probably be a lot better if we had actual observations um, uh, across the entire globe, but we, that's not possible. So a lot of points across the, the globe are estimated based on satellite data uh, and whatnot. So that, some of that stuff is not completely accurate. And so that can change from one run to another. Um, that's why when we see a hurricane, uh, we send out planes to the hurricane. They drop they measure winds and stuff like that, and they that when we put the planes in the planes out to these hurricanes, they can go all around the hurricane and take these measurements that you would never get without that plane there, and that helps forecast the track much much better than it used to be. And that we put all that information to these computer models, and then we get a much more accurate forecast than if the the plane was not out there. So we wish we could have planes all across the globe all the time, and that would probably improve uh, computer uh, model performance, but that's not possible due to, obviously, financial uh, considerations there and whatnot. So the models are getting better. Um, just the, the not, you know, we'd like to see them get better a little bit quicker. Uh, but the one thing with forecasters who've been here a while, we know what the model's weaknesses and strengths are. So we can factor that in. We know one particular model may always have too much rain, uh, predicting too much rain. So we'll factor that in. We'll reduce the amount of rainfall. Another model may always be have a warm bias, and uh, we'll we'll take that into account. We know those biases. And so that that also uh, is, is critical. You've been doing this a number of years, and I, it sounds like your job is a pretty interesting one. Um, is yeah. there a favorite aspect of it or a favorite weather pattern that you've ever seen that you think is really interesting? I, well, I grew up, I, lo I loved snowstorms. Um, um, I loved, I, I think, seeing a storm rapidly, uh, what we call bombogenesis, uh, intensify along the eastern seaboard. Uh, watching those things happen is pretty uh, interesting. Um, I think that's always drawn me in a bit. Now, as I get older, I, I've, I don't like winter as much as I used to. I get colder, so I'm starting to like the summer more, which I never did before. So um, so that's probably one thing that was really uh, interesting. I, my main job, other than blogging, is uh, drawing 
feature graphics for Acula.com every day. And I draw the graphics that you see online uh, by hand, and I give them to our graphics artists to draw them up. And I will draw graphics throughout Canada, the United States, and whatnot about the current weather patterns, uh, special feature graphics that we have for our stories and whatnot. And so my my day is quite interesting because every day I draw different things up because the weather is always changing and it's a, it's a lot of creative thinking too. Um, I used to do radio for many years and uh, uh, my voice, my, my throat kind of got tired of that. So now I'm uh, doing a lot of drawing of maps and stuff and uh, it's it's a lot of fun. So if somebody wants to be a meteorologist, then they, they need to know math and they need to know how to draw. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah, well, math is probably the big one, which, you know, unfortunately, it's part of the deal there. But you want to have the passion and, and certainly um, math is a big one. Physics is also uh, important. But uh, those are probably the two big ones at this point. Well, thank you for being with us today, Brett. If, um, if our listeners want to find you on your blog or connect with you online, how would they do that? Yeah, you can just go to AccuWeather.com. And uh, you can just uh, go under blogs on the front page, and you can uh, find me there, um, and you'll see my blog right on there. So I, typically I write my Canada blog maybe every other few days in the summer, not as much in the summer, but in the wintertime. Uh, try to, I try to get it at least uh, uh, four, five, six, maybe seven times a week, uh, especially when the storm's coming. So, uh, you know, uh, I think we get a lot more interest uh, with the winter forecasts. Uh, There's you know, a lot more activity going on in the winter time uh, across much of Canada. And that fall forecast that we've been talking about, will it be on your blog as well? Yeah, it'll be on my blog. It'll also be on AccuWeather.com. But yes, it should be, uh, it'll be put out there uh, this Monday. So we'll have the fall forecast there. Yep. Well, thank you, Brett, for your time today. I think that was uh, pretty educational. There's a lot of things I didn't really know um, how... It goes into predicting weather and what to look for. So thanks for yeah. your time today on the blog and uh, visiting us from Pennsylvania. Or, great talking to you. Yeah, thank you. Coming up next on our podcast, we have a conversation with our CEO, Barry Senth. We are joined today by Barry Senth, our CEO at Green Farmers of Ontario. Uh, and recently we've uh, had an announcement from the PMRA around neonics. Can you touch on that? Yes, about a week and a half ago, uh, PMRA came out and said that uh, they were proposing to ban uh, the two other chemistries that were, uh, uh, that, were that make up the neonic family, that uh, their proposal was to uh, ban that from three to five years. Uh, from that, again, that is a significant issue for not only now Ontario farmers, because uh, we've been living with a partial ban, but for farmers right across the country. So... Uh, Neonix is uh, used extensively throughout the country, especially canola out west. So this is going to have a significant effect, a significant effect if this, in fact, goes through. Our intent would be to uh, uh, meet with PMRA as, uh, as a Canadian industry and uh, see if we can resolve some of the uh, what they feel the outstanding issues are to uh, continue the um, the usage of this uh, of this chemistry for uh, for crop protection for our farmers. And you were just in Ottawa meeting with the PMRA and the equipment manufacturers and an event that they held. Can you tell us about that? Sure. Well, this event was set up a long time before uh, uh, the announcement a couple of weeks ago. The equipment manufacturers um, um, 
organize this with assistance from uh, GFO, from uh, CropLife, and from the Canadian Seed Trade Association. And what they did was uh, go out to a farm east of Ottawa and have some equipment there, a couple of different corn planters, a, uh, some spraying equipment, and people that knew the, knew the seed business. And 40 employees came out from PMRA, and we spent about four hours talking to them about the issue of equipment and how uh, seed is placed in the ground by these seed planters, the new technology that's out there. Um, the the reason that we use seed treatment was another uh, uh, emphasis within the morning. And then Dave Park, our director from Sarnia, was out there to talk about how important that tool and access to that tool was for their farm. So, uh, And then we talked about the other technology uh, that's... Uh, you know, I don't think some of the uh, people that uh, came out from that, um, uh, from PMRA yesterday, understood how much technology is used in farming uh, as far as the uh, uh, using tablets. That type of uh, uh, news was, um, uh, I think, a great information to be sharing with, uh, with people that regulate an industry. So these people from PMRA, they didn't have an agriculture background? This was sort of an introduction for them? Absolutely. Some of them may have, but basically, no, they'd have been uh, likely uh, non-agriculture that are in uh, now having an influence on the tools that, uh, that our farmer members use. And so this was a good, uh, a good opportunity to share with them some real-life uh, examples. It's like anything else. You can read about it uh, uh, but there's nothing like going out and experiencing it in real life and uh, seeing how it's actually done. So I think, I think it was a, a great success. And uh, and again, having Dave Park um, share with him some of his uh, experiences is uh, when he was uh, a younger Dave Park about uh, some of the products that uh, his family used on their farm uh, back uh, 20, 25 years ago, compared to what. Uh, uh, you know, the safety that neonics actually provide to some of those products used a number of years ago. And, of, you know, we've advanced in that usage of technology that, or usage of chemistry that's a lot safer to the environment than we once had. And uh, September 11th is the annual general meeting. Um, can you just outline a little bit what happens there and why it's important for uh, farmer members to attend? Sure. Well, an AGM, is in, as every other AGM is, is a report back to the share, shareholders, in this case our farmer members. And what we'll be having is a um, is our uh, message from our um, chair, Marcus Harold, um, about uh, uh, some of the issues that have occurred uh, over the past year and upcoming issues. A report from myself about uh, about the operations of uh, of GFO. Uh, maybe most importantly of that is a uh, report on our financial uh, results for the year just passed by our auditor, and that is important uh, for our farmer members to know what's going on from uh, a financial perspective for their organization, an organization they contribute uh, money to, and then we'll have reports from Crosby Devon, our VP for. Uh, for strategic development, along with we've got an invitation out to our uh, new Ontario Minister of Agriculture, Ernie Hardiman. Uh, this is in Mr. Hardiman's uh, hometown, so we're hopeful that uh, the minister will come out and spend a few minutes with us uh, uh, that morning. So uh, we urge all members, this is a meeting open to our farmer members, we urge uh, our members to get out to that on September 11th. Great. Thank you, Barry, for joining us and uh, for a quick update from the CEO office. Thank you, guys. 
Thank you for listening to our Grain Talk podcast. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. For more ways to connect with us, including the latest webinar, market report, and our e-newsletter, go to gfo.ca slash grain talk. A special thank you to our guests today, Brett Anderson and Barry Senf. And thank you to our producer, Mark Carter. If you like what you've heard today on the podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple iTunes and Google Play.